0: Welcome. It is good to be back. Amen. We're so excited to see what the Lord is going to do this year. Uh, Just so you know, we're we're finishing up Nehemiah tonight and next Tuesday night, and then we start the Women of the Bible. So we had to finish Nehemiah. I mean, it's like we started a year ago, and it's like I have to finish this. So. Tonight we are going to do our, our 19th lesson in Nehemiah, and then next week we have our 20th, and then we'll be all done. We'll graduate, and we get to move on to Women of the Bible. So uh, what we've learned so far in Nehemiah, well, the year was 19, excuse me. <laughs> it was 432, just slightly off. 432 BC. And the Israelites had found themselves in captivity in Babylon. And it came to Nehemiah's attention that the wall had been broken down and And so he was just heartbroken over this. And so he went before the king. And mind you, Nehemiah is a slave in Babylon. He is the cupbearer. And so he went up to the king because he was downcast. And the king was a little worried about him. So apparently he was a pretty nice king. And he says, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And he says, well, I found out that my city is still in ruins. He says, and I want to go back. And I want to restore the wall." And so he goes back, and he's met with all sorts of opposition. You remember Tobias and Sanballat, you know, boo, those are the bad guys. And they're constantly threatening him. Uh, they even threaten violence and, and even killing him and all these things. But finally, after 52 days, it's like obviously it wasn't a government job, but 52 jay- days, they finished the wall. And after they finished it, they had this big celebration. They had like this giant worship service, and they decided to bring out the Torah, and they were reading the book of Moses. And they found out that they had been doing everything wrong. They hadn't been following the, the the law of Moses. And so when they found this, they fell down on their faces. They asked for forgiveness from God. They made a covenant with him saying, we will never do this again. We promise, you know, pinky swear. They said, we will not do this. And so now we pick up in chapter 13. And before we do that, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so excited to come back and to uh, finish up this book of Nehemiah. There is so much in it that we can glean from it. Uh, so many life lessons that are so important for us to apply to our lives. And so we are so thankful that you have allowed us to come together once again and to sit before you, Lord, and to learn and to gleam and to grow in our walk with you. So we love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 1. Now it says on that same day or on that day, they're talking about the Lord's Day, which would be the Sabbath, which would be a Saturday. And most scholars believe that this is when they normally read the book of Moses. Uh, Perhaps very similar to us reading the word of God here at church. And also, we need to remember that they'd gotten into so much trouble before because they weren't reading the word of God. When we neglect the word of God, we don't know what he's expecting of us. And so that's why it's so important to read your Bibles, because then you go, oh, now I get it. This is what God wants me to do. Same thing for the children of Israel. They go, wow, after reading the Torah, they're going, God doesn't want us to do this, and he doesn't want us to do that. And so they're not going to displease him in that way. So apparently they're keeping their vow at this time of reading the Torah, the word of God. And then verse 1 continues, And as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. Now these people were known to be pagans. So he's saying, do not allow pagans in the temple. This is for Jews only. And so apparently they didn't realize that when God told them to have nothing to do with them, that meant don't let them into the temple. Then verse 2 says, for they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. They're talking about that time when the, the Israelites are wandering in the desert, and, they, and they're having to have manna, and Moses is having to get water from a rock, and that kind of thing. You probably remember all those stories. And so now they're, this is the 40 years wilderness kind of thing. They're wandering around, and it says, Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. So who is this Balaam guy? What is his story? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And to set the, the stage, it's found in Numbers chapter 22. And what had happened is when the children of Israel showed up in Moab, the Moab king, Called Balak, so we have Balak the king and, <clears throat> excuse me, <coughs> and Balaam the prophet. And so he said, Go get this Balaam guy because he's known to be a prophet, even though he's not a Jew. He's known to be a prophet, and whoever Balaam blesses, they are blessed, and whoever Balaam curses, they are cursed. And so he says, here, you need to go get this guy. And if you want to read along with me, it's found in Numbers 22, verses 5 through 6, and it says, look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me because they are too powerful for me. Then perhaps I'll be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that blessings fall on any people you bless and curses fall on people you curse. And so here the king is begging this Balaam guy saying, please come curse these people because I am really terrified of them. So Balaam said that he would seek God on this, and God said, No, you can't curse my people. Are you kidding me? That's paraphrased, of course. And and so Balaam sent word to King Balak, saying, No. And so Balak said, Please, 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 I will pay you a lot of money if you do this for me. And God saw Balaam's heart because you know he's a little greedy there. He's going, Oh, you know, that's that's really tempting. He said he'd pay me a lot if I cursed the people. And so knowing the hardness of his heart, God said, all right, fine, go ahead and try it. And this is where the good stuff comes. Numbers 22, verses 21 through 35, and I'm gonna read this for you. It says, so the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey and started off with the Moabite officials, but God was angry that Balaam was going, so he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way as Balaam and two servants were riding along. Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. That had to have been terrifying, right? Apparently Balaam did not see it, only the donkey. and says, and the donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crush Balaam's foot against the wall. Now, I had this happen to me one time. Uh, Growing up, my grandfather lived in Texas, just south of Dallas. And we were visiting there one summer when I was young. I was probably eight, eight years old or so. And the neighbor said, hey, I saw that your grandchildren are over. Invite them over. I've got a Shetland pony. You can tell the kids they can ride it anytime they want. Here's the bridle. All they have to do is put the bridle on, and they can ride it around this field. It was about an acre. And so we're going, well, of course, a girl and a pony. You know, I'm thinking my little pony kind of thing. But. Um, so we went over there to ride this little Shetland pony and they have a foul disposition. I didn't know that, but anyway, I'd get on the back of this Shetland pony and the first thing he would do would run to the fence and try to rub you off of his back by rubbing against the fence. And the first time he did it to me, I did, I crushed my foot just like Balaam, the donkey did to him. And it hurt a lot. Of course, I learned after a while, every time the, the pony ran to the fence, I would just lift my leg up, and then he would scrape his sides, you know. But anyway, so I knew, I'm, I'm reading this, I'm going, I had this happen to me, silly pony. But anyway, um, here's the donkey doing this. And it says, then the angel of the Lord moved farther down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time, when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. Had to have been a sight, right? In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. Now, I would love to have seen that, because I've heard a lot of donkeys speak these days. Um, (laughs) What have I done to you that deserves... "'You're beating me three times,' it asked Balaam. "'You have made me look like a fool,' Balaam shouted. I mean, he's shouting at a donkey, mind you. "'If I had a sword with me, I would kill you.'" And the donkey says, "'But I am the same donkey "'you have ridden all your life,' the donkey answered. "'Have I ever done anything like this before?' "'No,' Balaam admitted.'" Then the the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand and Balaam bowed his head and fell down on face down on the ground before him. Why did you beat your donkey those three times the angel of the Lord demanded? Look I have come to block your way because you are stubbornly stubbornly (laughs) you know what I'm saying resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would certainly have killed you by now and spared the donkey. Then Balaam confessed to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way. I will return home if you were against my going. But the angel of the Lord told Balaam, go with these men and say only what I tell you to say. So Balaam went on with Balak's officials. So at the end of the story, we find that Balaam does obey God and blesses the children of Israel three times. And King Balak gets really mad at Balaam and sends him away. But before Balaam leaves, he prophesies over Moab that they will be conquered. So now you see why God says, don't have anything to do with these Moabites. I really don't like them. They're not to be in the temple so now verse three in Nehemiah, it says, when this passage of the law was read, all those foreign, of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. So they right away kicked out the Moabites and perhaps that might seem a little bit harsh to you, but you know, let's look at that for a moment. The Moabites and the Ammonites were known for their pagan worship. They were despicable people. Oftentimes they used sacrifices, human sacrifices, baby sacrifices, they would uh, worship in sexual ways. And so wherever they went, they seemed to draw people in because it really appealed to the flesh of some people. And so they say, I don't want these people intermixing with the, the pure, Israelites, the Jewish people. And so he says, I don't want that. And, you know, that's a very good lesson for us today. Whenever we let sin into the camp, when we let somebody come in and be open in open rebellion against God, you know, a lot of times it draws people in because it appeals to the flesh. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2 tells us, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Apparently, they had the same problem during Paul's time. It so says something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother, and you are so proud of yourselves. Don't we hear that in the church today? It's like, wow, you know what? We're, we have free love, and you know, love is love, and yet we're, they're allowing sin into the church. A lot of churches are doing that, and so that's why Paul is addressing it. He says, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Why? Because it is like a cancer. It spreads. It influences other people. So God is very clear about not having anything to do with those that have unrepentant sin. Obviously, we have sinners in the church, amen? We're all sinners. We all need God's grace. But this is someone who's in open rebellion to God. And apparently, the Moabites were the same way. They were in open rebellion, and they wanted to kind of slip in and influence the children of Israel to begin their pagan worship once again. So our next passage kind of proves this. Nehemiah 13.4 goes on to say, before this had happened, Eliashib, the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, so we hear Tobiah again, the bad guy. So what had happened is Eliashib, the high priest, this is a high priest, mind you, so this is like the senior pastor. He had, you know, he had relatives, all, you know, there was a lot of nepotism going on, so he had relatives in there, and he was a relative of Tobiah through marriage. Eliashib at one time had a Moabite wife, and his grandson was married to Sanballat's daughter. And, now, and then we also know that Sanballat and Tobiah were relatives, and so th- now they're all related, and they're kind of building this little kingdom here. And so Sanbat and uh, and Tobiah were now infiltrating once again the Jewish people. And these guys were governors, so they had a lot of power, and they had given Nehemiah a really hard time when they were trying to build the temple. And they made made, uh, several attempts, again, at his life and mocking and all that kind of stuff. So now we see that there's corruption in the temple or the church. And then verse 5 goes on to say, And he had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobias's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. So, what is being said here is this is for the pastor this is for the worship leaders this is for the maintenance guys you know and yet none of that was in the storage room and they had made a covenant with god that they would never neglect the temple ever ever again this is their covenant they made with god boy that that went away very quickly and so now the priest was not only allowing pagan men in the temple, they had taken up residence in it. They were using it as a, as a place of business. It would be very similar to if we decided to allow the high, the high school room or the junior high room to be used as, you know, a Starbucks or something like that. You know, kind of the same thing. It just was turned into a business instead of being something that was consecrated for the use of the Lord. Then verse 6, Nehemiah is talking here. He says, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked his permission to return. So for those of you who are wondering how Nehemiah could allow this to happen, well, he wasn't there. That's what this just told us. And so what had happened is after he rebuilt Jerusalem, He then for 12 years ruled in Jerusalem and then he had promised the king that he would go back and serve because after all, he was still a slave. And so this is what has happened. As soon as he left, you know, all these people just saw the opportunity. They moved in. They said, hey, we're going to take over. We finally got got rid of that Nehemiah guy. So now we get to do whatever we want. He says... Now I'm needed again. And he says, when I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. And it is estimated he was only gone like one or two years. That's it. And that is how much corruption came in that short of time. He says, I became very upset and threw out all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Does that sound familiar to you? We have it in our worksheets, but I love this story because it is so much like what Jesus did, and it's found in Mark 11, verses 15 through 17. He says, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. They had also desecrated the temple. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. This is exactly what had happened during Nehemiah's time also. They had turned it into a den of thieves. Then verse 9 of, of Nehemiah 13 says, "Then I demanded that the rooms be purified and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense." So, Eliashib had allowed the temper to be corrupted, therefore it needed to be purified once again. By they brought it in, they brought in water, they scrubbed it down, they cleaned it real good, and then they had to sacrifice an animal for the sin that they had committed. Then he restored once again how it was supposed to be with the articles of God's temple, the grains, offerings, you know, the storage room. Then verse 10 tells us, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they weren't even taking care of the basic needs of the Levite priest. So they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work in their fields so they had to become farmers in order to eat and so once again they they disobeyed God's law he says and immediately i confronted the leaders and demanded why was the temple of god neglected then i called all the levites back again and restored them to their proper duties And, of course, it doesn't say anything about the officials that he was talking to. He says, you know, why did you allow this to happen? You know, they were probably a little embarrassed. They said, oops, you know, we've been caught kind of thing. But there was no excuse for the way they had acted. Then verse 12 tells us, And once more all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. So Nehemiah once again had to restore the temple, the way it was supposed to be. And then verse 13 says, I assigned supervisors for the storerooms. Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah, one of the Levites, and I appointed Hanan, son of zikur and grandson of Mataniah as their assistant these men had excellent reputations, and it was their job to make honest distributions to their fellow Levites. And so he said, okay, you guys are fired because you've done a horrible job and disobeyed God. And then he brought people of men of good reputation to come and take over and do what the Lord had commanded. And he finds just people of men of good reputation amongst the other people. So verse 14 goes on to say, remember this good deed, O my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services. So once again, we see Nehemiah on his face before God saying, Lord, I know they blew it again. I know they promised never to neglect the temple. I know they promised to obey God's Uh, your law he says but please forgive them show them mercy once more and you can just kind of see him on his face going please please Lord I know they deserve punishment I know they made a covenant but show them mercy once more so what can we learn from this all this happened while Nehemiah was away which suggests that those he appointed in his absence had failed. They had fallen under uh, the, the, the guise of, oh, you know what, we just need to take over, you know, the temple, you know, that kind of thing. And they just, they, they begin to compromise. And so what we have here is perhaps Nehemiah didn't pick the right guys to begin with, after all, he's only human, but now he rectified it. But too often you know, church leaders fall into this trap, and too often people will blindly follow after what the leaders do, and it's very tragic. It was bad enough that an Ammonite had been living in the temple, but the high priest had actually allowed this, and so that was horrible. Uh, of course, Nehemiah lost no time in kicking them out, and he acted quickly and concisely, And like our Lord, Nehemiah had to cleanse the temple just like Jesus had to. 1 Corinthians 6.19, though, tells us, and this is where we can apply it to our lives. It says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore we should likewise kind of clean out our temples every once in a while when we let the world kind of sneak in and we let things influence whether it's uh, music or things that we read it's movies that we watch we kind of allow a little bit of the world into our storerooms. And every once in a while, I have to do that. I notice that, oh, you know what? My storeroom's kind of dirty. I've let a lot of clutter get in there. And it, this isn't of God. I need to just clean it out and, and sanctify it once more. So I would recommend that each one of us do that on a regular basis because you'd be surprised what you can find in your storeroom. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, what happens, though, when this happens in the church, and this does happen today, just like it happened in Nehemiah's time, it does happen in the church today. And so many churches, it seems, especially today, that they are allowing so much compromise in the, in the, in the church, in God's temple, God's sanctuary. And this is a problem from the very beginning. In Timothy, Six, three. Paul had to address this because apparently Timothy was struggling with people and compromise in the church. And I'll read it for you. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. It says, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words this stirs up arguments ending in jealousy division slander and evil suspicions these people always cause trouble their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth to them a show of godliness is a way to become wealthy isn't that exactly what happened to nehemiah and the temple But let's look at the progression of these people. What are their traits? Well, the first thing they do is they contradict the word of God. Whenever you're in a discussion with someone and they're trying to uh, speak an untruth, a good way to diffuse it is say, prove it to me through the word of God. Not taken out of context. I need to see what scripture backs up the comment that you're making. That's very important. They have to prove it. By the word of God. They're also arrogant or proud. They think they got it going on. Like, I have got a new revelation from Jesus Christ. I have heard that so many times. Yeah, I know the Bible says this, but I have a new word from God. No, that doesn't happen. We can't add to God's word. It says what it says. There is an unhealthy desire to argue Do you ever meet people like that who just love to argue? I have a few people like that in my life and they drive me crazy. I mean, I could say, wow, it's a beautiful night, isn't it? And they'll go, no, it's not. You know, so I say, oh, okay, you know what, I'm not going to go there, but they just, they want to argue. They want to argue. It's like, whatever, if you don't like the beautiful lights, it looks very festive and stuff in here. If you don't like that, fine. But you know, they just love to argue. There's also jealousy, possibly over positions that other people have. We find that in the church all the time, don't we? Jealousy can always cause problems. And then we have division. Once you're jealous and you want to uh, gather an army, saying, "Well, shouldn't I be in charge instead of her?" I mean, obviously, look at her. You know, she can't even find you know uh, anything. You know, she can't talk, she stutters all the time. And uh, and then they gather an army and they go, yeah, you know, you're right, you're right. She does do that. Yeah, I don't think she should be in a position of leadership at all, you know. And so they gather their army and then they, you know, do this confrontation. I've seen this in churches. Drives me crazy, it breaks my heart because always somebody is hurt in the process. And once they cause division, then there's the slander. If they can't prove it through the word, then they prove it through gossip and that kind of thing. And then there's evil suspicions. They plant doubts of a person's character. Haven't we seen all this? If if you've been following us in Nehemiah, this is uncanny because this is exactly what happened. And they're always causing trouble. Whichever church they go to, they eventually cause trouble, always. They thrive on it. They love it. They are being used by the enemy when they do this. Their minds are corrupt. That's what the word says. Their minds are corrupt. So the true meaning of corrupt is having a willingness to act dishonestly in return for money or personal gain. So they turn their back on the truth, and they look at the church as a way to make money. So you may be thinking how people could get so corrupt during Nehemiah's time. Well, let's look at their attributes of Tobiah and Sanballat and Eliza Shib. I have trouble saying that word, by the way. Um, but they contradicted God's word, didn't they? They were arrogant and proud, thinking, oh, God doesn't mind if I use the temple as a storage room. There was an unhealthy desire to argue. We found that out about them early on in uh, Nehemiah. There was jealousy, they caused division, they slandered, they accused people of evil. Remember they had accused uh, Nehemiah of trying to go against the king, hoping that the king would have him executed. Their minds were corrupt, they turned their backs on the truth, and they looked at the temple as a way to make money. So you know what, we haven't changed, people haven't changed in all those years we're all the same, we all have the same weaknesses, we all sin, thank God that he is full of grace and mercy, amen, because we all blow it, it's our human nature to act this way, you may be thinking, oh, I would never do what the Jewish people did, if I made a covenant with God, I would never go against my word, and then what does that last, a week, you know, you know, we're all the same. We say, like, I mean, how many times have you promised? I promise God I will never do that sin again. And then you go ahead and do it. And it just breaks your heart. You hate it. You hate that about yourself. But you know what? God is so gracious. And all you have to do is say, Lord, I'm sorry. And he goes, I understand. I forgive you. He's such a gracious God. And he's treated the, Jew- the Jewish people the same way. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 11 kind of shines a lot of light on this. He says, history merely repeats itself. It has been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. You won't remember what happened in the past. And in the future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. That's Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 11. We have such short memories. We always forget. And that's exactly what the Jewish people do. That's what we do today. So what is the solution? Well, obviously we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Not on people, not on systems, not on churches or organizations, not political parties, nothing but Jesus. And not be discouraged because, you know, he's got this. He's got it under control. It's all part of his plan. When we see corruption and ungodliness and pride, greed, we've seen it all before. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because people will always disappoint you. We're all imperfect. And if you're looking for someone to be perfect, if you're looking for me to be perfect, or for Nene to be perfect, or Susie to be perfect, we will disappoint you because none of us are perfect. None of us. Instead, just trust Jesus that he has this. He knows what we need, and he knows how to fix everything that is wrong. Hebrews 12 says it like this, and it's verses 1 through 3. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Worrying slows us down, doesn't it? Especially the sin that easily trips us up. Oh, if you had a lot of sin in your storage room, that will trip you up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates the perfe- and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become wary and give up because he's been through it all before. He understands human nature like nobody else. He knows what you're going through. He knows the difficulties that you're going through. And he has seen it, he's been through it. But what we have hidden in our storm rooms definitely can slow us down. Just like it says here, it will only trip us up. And it keeps us from running that faith, that race of faith. We can do all of this if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and I will leave you with this beautiful psalm. It's found in Psalm 62, verses five through seven. It says, my soul wait patiently for God alone, for my expectations is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. We need to take refuge in God, not just some of the times, not when things are going easy or just not when just things are going bad, but when things are going easy. We need to keep our eyes focused on him. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your mercy and your grace that you show each one of us. Just like the mercy and grace you showed on the Israelite people. That was amazing. They had made a covenant with you. They promised that they would never neglect the temple of the Lord or your temple, Lord. And yet they went back on their promise. So, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Help us to rest in that, especially when we blow it. Lord, help us to not be condemned, but to take that conviction that you will put into our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, and help us to change those things which need to be changed. Help us to clean out our storerooms. If there's anything in there that we need to clean out, anything that isn't of you, Lord, help us to do that. Give us the strength to do that. Help us to know that we don't need these things. But we do need you, and we need you desperately. So we love you, Lord. We just thank you for this time together, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.